Turning that on, I turned it off. Sorry, Jeff. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. We are breathing in his grace and breathing out his praise. I don't know um, how many of you are aware our, uh, you know, our, our church, some of our church leaders were at the, uh, what has become known as the Global Leadership Summit. It's put on by a church in uh, the Chicagoland area every year, and um, they bring together uh, speakers from around the world. They bring people from every, every venue, uh, from preachers to politicians to uh, business executives. Um, it's where I first heard Carly Fiorini speak. Um, it's uh, where I first heard Jim Collins. Um, this year I heard a pastor from Africa whose name I forget, but I am going to try to find out where that man's materials are published and steal widely from what he's doing. <laughs> he's brilliant in the way he reads and understands Scripture and shares it. It just, it just was phenomenal. And um, we got a chance. Some of us went uh, back to Chicago uh, to, to be part of it there on site. Um, it's significant for a couple of reasons. There's a different uh, feel, a different vibe when you're in a location versus being in a location where the same thing is being broadcast. When you're in, in the presence of the activities that are going on, there's a, a different feel to it. And I also wanted uh, some of our church leaders to see what it takes to keep a 20,000 or 21,000 uh, member church functioning. Um, they have uh, 21,000 people that come there on a weekend. And so I, you just have to just, just imagine, if you can, in any way, what that must be like just the logistics of keeping paper towels in the bathrooms you know you start thinking about all the things you have to figure out if you had 21,000 people rolling through on a weekend and that's kind of where they are and I just I just think it's good to to see what God does and what he's doing in other churches and what he's doing in other people's lives and um, to uh, recognize that there are wonderful things out there in the kingdom um, from the from the little gathering uh, time that we spent there, um, we brought home some some ideas from a variety of uh, of sources. The feeding of the five thousand, um, just bring your lunch. That's all you got to do. Show up with your lunch and see what Jesus does. Think about it. The feeding of the five thousand depended on one little boy. Showing up with his lunch. Show up with your lunch. See what he does. Considering uh, all that we have going ahead of us in the pursuit of a second phase in our building, we, we need some lunches to show up. See what God's going to do with blessing those. Um, from all of the, the things that we walked through, one of the most interesting was the president, uh, founding president of the Ritz-Carlton. And his approaches to caring for people, he said, and I, I loved what he said. He said, you, you basically you come to, a, to any, any uh, exchange and you expect whatever you're buying to come without defect. So, you know, if you buy a chocolate chip cookie, you expect it to have chocolate chips in it, right? You expect it to come without defect. You expect that someone has not taken a bite before you got the cookie, Right? You expect what you get to come without defect, right? So in any exchange, you expect it to come sort of fairly flawless as you exchange it. You expect it to be timely. 
You expect to get it when you said they said you were going to get it. You get expected to come on time. You know, when you've ordered something or you've wanted something, you've had to stand in line for it or it didn't show up when they said it would show up and all you know how you feel about that. He said, but what makes, the, makes or breaks the exchange is that the person in the exchange receiving, on the receiving end of that exchange, knows they're cared for. Knows that they're just cared for. And that there's no better place for that to be true than in church. You know, we, 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 we should try to do this as faultlessly as possible. We know we don't do everything perfect, but we, we try to do it without many defects. We should do it timely, and I know the preacher is the, probably the biggest obstacle there, timely fashion. But in all places, man, shouldn't it be true that when we exchange the love of Christ, when we meet together in church, when we are in this place, whether you're new or you've been here the last 25 years, shouldn't it be a place where you know you're cared for? So those are just some of the goals that we'll be looking at, some that we'd like to place in front of you, and some of the things we've been learning in the time we were away. Uh, we, we were in Chicago, so we invited Zach and Yvette Ryber to join us. I know most of you know Zach and Yvette. Um, uh, their dad was the guy singing right here, Zach's dad. And um, they were, were with us there along with one of our other seminary students from Northern California, Gressford Thomas. And uh, so we had some time to spend with them. They, had, they welcomed us into their home uh, for Sabbath lunch. And so we, just, we had a good time while we were away. Uh, Monday showed up here and got hit the ground running with... Uh, Monday night's business meeting. And again, if you didn't hear, during the business meeting, we voted to go ahead with the two-story option in our church. Um, there's a, a pretty strong consensus, probably about 85% uh, in favor of it. And so we're going to move forward in that direction and see how God leads. And like I said, uh, we're going to need some folks to bring their lunch and let him bless it and see what happens after that. I think one of our elders said it well. Uh, Mark Borat said... Uh, Okay, now we've made the vote. Now it's God for op- God, time for God to open school. Because from here on we learn what God can do. Amen. So today we're starting a new series that some of you are probably maybe happy about. Some of you may be a little concerned about. It's called Things I Want to Talk About. <laughs> so it's Things I Want to Talk About. And today I'd like to start that out with... Um, What I think is one of the most overlooked commandments, I've shared it with you a little bit before, I'm going to go a little deeper at it today, Um, a command for our season, we're actually going to look at the first three commandments, so if you're opening your Bible, if you have brought it with you today, uh, Exodus chapter 20 is where we're going to start, if you don't have one, there might be one in the back of the seat, these seats get moved around a lot, um, so sometimes they get moved out, and there are some back in the back on the offering cabinet, if you'd like to just find one there. Exodus chapter 20, you're going to find Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, and um, we'll start in that neighborhood now. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Father, once again, we ask that your hand be upon what we are trying to do. We recognize that we affect no eternal thing, except that we present it to you. And so today we hand these things over to you and ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Jesus begins to express himself at Mount Sinai, now you remember that the commandments were shared verbally. The people gathered and they heard God speak to them. It freaked them out. They, did, they, were, like, they were telling Moses at the end of this, don't let him talk to us anymore, it's too scary, too scary. 
Okay? But what I want you to get is a little bit of background about maybe what was scaring them just a hair. Just a little bit of what might have set them on that road. Um, Moses was told, warn the people. Be careful, do not go up the mountain. So the mountain is, the, is Mount Sinai, and he's telling them, stay back, warn them, don't go up the mountain. In fact, put a fence around the mountain, or even touch its boundaries. Anyone who touches the mountain will certainly be what? Put to death. Now, would that make you a little nervous? Now, it's not so hard. It's like you stay over there, don't touch this, and you won't, you won't die. I mean, it's a pretty simple set of directions. Don't go beyond that fence. It's a problem for you if you go beyond that fence. It's not a real challenge not to, t- not to touch the mountain, is it? Unless you're one of those curious kids. You've got you to experience everything for yourself. Don't touch the stove. Oh, that hurt, right? You're, you're the kid who, uh, your dad said, don't touch the saw blade. So you didn't actually plug it in, but you touched it just to see what it felt like, right? You're that kid, this was bad for you. But the idea here is it's not a hard sort of first gate God is giving them. Don't touch the mountain. Stay back from the mountain. I'm on the mountain. Don't come here. Don't touch the mountain. Okay? So the first thing he tells them is stay back. Don't touch the mountain. No hand may touch the person or the animal who crosses the boundary. So if your dog walks across, sorry, Fido. We probably shouldn't have a dog out in the desert anyway. Such a hard life. Any animal that touches it, instead stone them or shoot them. In other words, don't even go over there and pick them up and bring them back. Stone them or shoot them where they lie. They must be put to death. Nervous yet? Would you be? I know you're kind of looking at it and saying, well, I don't have to deal with that. That was their problem. But would you be nervous if this was an order given to you? Don't touch the mountain. Be careful. Don't touch it. Okay. One of the discussions we need to be asking ourselves, one of the things you need to ask yourself at this point is, what is a loving God doing? Aren't you? Aren't you asking that question at this point, at least in your heart, saying, kind of, what is God up to? Why would a loving, caring, gracious God be putting boundaries around the mountain, saying, don't touch it lest you die? Now, we don't have a record that anybody touched it. You know, there's no record that says, and, and Sam just couldn't, couldn't resist. He went over there and put his finger on it. We don't have that record. So Israel apparently obeyed this rule. Do what I say or die. Okay? Are they accustomed to this kind of approach from God? Yeah, this is what all the other pagan gods said, right? All the other pagan gods said, do what I say or die. Do what I say or die. That's the rules. That's the way gods operate. That's the way all the pagan gods were operating. So Israel understood this approach. They understood this kind of a God. They understood how this was supposed to work. They knew where they belonged. They knew where God belonged. There were clear boundaries. You stay on that side of the fence. I stay on this side of the fence. Over there is you. Over there is me. Okay? However, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast. It's longer than that because it says in the text it just went on and on and got louder and louder. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, then the people may do what? Go up on the mountain. When the ram's horn blows a long blast, the people may go up the mountain. So until I tell you, you stay over there. But when I tell you, you can come in here. Now, this is a revolutionary idea for a God. 
you understand how revolutionary this is? No, none of the gods were approachable. None of the gods of Egypt or Canaan or the Hittites or the Amorites, none of their gods were approachable like this. None of them were inviting you into connection and relationship. None of them were saying, hey, at the signal, at the right signal, when the light turns green, come on over. None of them. So this is kind of a revolutionary idea. Stay back there on the other side. Don't cross the fence. Everybody kind of got that. Now this God is saying when the, when the horn blows, come on up. Now we've talked about this before. Do they do it? Anybody remember? They do not do it. They, they don't do it. They can't handle this. In fact, they tell Moses, you go and be with God. We'll stay over here where it's safe. Because they understood, don't cross the line or you'll die. They didn't understand. Come up. Come up into the, the smoke and the fire and the earthquake. Come join me. I got this. I got you covered. I'm good. I will cover you even though things are scary. I will cover you even though it looks frightening. I'll take care of you. Come up when the ram's horn blows. Come, on, come into this scary, amazing, beyond your wildest imagination relationship. They didn't get that. Because every other God they had ever encountered on anybody's description, here's the boundary. You stay over there. Don't come near me. And if you come near me, it's a death penalty. This God was saying, hey, I got you. When the ram's horn blows, consider that my invitation to come up the mountain. Come see what Moses has been seeing. Come feel what Moses has been feeling. Come smell what Moses has been smelling. Come hear what Moses has been hearing. Come up the mountain. So Moses went down to the people and he consecrated them for worship and washed their clothes and he told them, get ready for the what? You should read through your Bible someday just looking for the third day. Just look at all the interesting things that happened on the third day. I think some of these things are just pointing us to get, to get our minds around the idea that there's going to be a resurrection on the third day. God is just laying the groundwork for something big happening on the third day. Right when he first introduces Israel to himself. First meeting, when they're really getting to know who God is. There they are at the mountain with all this spectacular stuff going on. All this wildness around them. And God's inviting them into the relationship. And, and Moses says, hey, here's how you get ready for the relationship. Go clean up, wash your clothes, be prepared. And be ready for something cool to happen on the third day. You know, if the disciples had been sitting in the upper room when, and thinking about this passage, they'd have washed their clothes and gone down to the tomb ready for something cool to happen on the third day. God had laid the groundwork for them. I wonder sometimes, is there some exegetical or some uh, eschatological end-time third-day thing we're going to experience? I don't know. I don't know. But it might be worth keeping your eyes open. On the morning of the third day, what time? Again, on the morning. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared. Lightning flashed. A dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast of the ram's horn. What was there? Long, loud blast of the ram's horn. And all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended in the form of a fire. 
The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. And the whole mountain shook violently. Sound like a party you want to be invited to? No? Chicken. Think about what was going on here. God descends on the mountain. It starts billowing smoke. Thunder. Lightning. Earthquake. This is crazy. This is wild. Here's the God who actually does stuff. You know, all the other gods that they'd run into, they had the you stay over there, I stay over here stuff, but they were just lumps. They just sat there, a lump of rock, a lump of wood. They just sat there and never did nothing. Oh, yeah, this God is in charge of the sun coming up. Well, how, can you tell me how that works? Because it just seems to come up every day. This God is in charge of the river flowing. Well, that's just weird, too, because the river never seems to stop flowing. So did he start that at some point? Is he going to stop it at another point? When do I know if he's actually in charge? Right? These gods are in charge of things that always happen anyway. This God does stuff that doesn't happen every day. Ever seen a mountain on fire that was, on, that was just smoking? Billowing smoke up so that it looks like a kiln? Ever stood by a mountain like that and seen the whole thing shake? Of course you haven't. Earthquake, fire, thunder, lightning. This is a God who does stuff. You know what God is doing for Israel? He's introducing himself. Israel is more pagan than, than, than they are a follower of God at this point. They've been 400 years in a pagan country. They've heard about Ra. They've heard about all the gods of the Beatles and this and that and the other thing. They've heard of everything imaginable in Canaan and Egypt. They don't really know their God. This is a way of introducing himself. Okay, you guys, everybody come, gather around. There's a fence. Don't cross the fence. Crowd stays on that side of the fence. God stays on this side of the fence. And when you get up here to the fence, now watch. <laughs> You got him, right? Here's God introducing himself. He's saying, good morning, everybody. How are you doing this morning? I got some things to say, and I'd like to have your attention, please. Did you think he had it? He got the attention of three million people just like that. Can you try to get the attention of three ten-year-olds? Now you got it. He is introducing himself as different from anything they've ever seen before. He's not a lump sitting in a temple somewhere. He's the God who moves things and does things and interacts with them. He's got something to say. He wants their attention. He's saying hello. He's getting that attention. And believe me, if he starts thunder, lightning, earthquakes, smoke and fire in front of you, you're going to be paying attention. All of us would. It's a spectacular demonstration of his authority and his power. He's differentiating himself from any other God they've ever bumped into, and he's getting everyone's attention. Good morning, everyone. Then God, the, God gave the people all of these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, a place of your slavery. Probably more like, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. You know, it kind of has to echo through there, wouldn't it? If you've got smoke and fire and thunder and lightning, you've got to be a little louder than a whisper, I would assume. Although that wasn't Elijah's experience. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, from the place of slavery. What is the first thing Israel needs to know about God? He's the one who saved them. That is the first fact that everyone who is ever going to follow God has to get straight. He is the one 
who saves you. He is the one who rescued you. Here's the relationship. Here's how the relationship works. He is God. I am not. I am stuck. He rescues me. That's our relationship. That's how it's founded. That's what it stands on. Before God says a single thing about commands, before he says, thou shalt not, thou shalt, before he commands anything, he says, let's understand the relationship. I've already extended my mercy to you. I've always extended my grace to you. I've already rescued you from the hand of slavery. I've already come to rescue you. And here we are today because of that. First fact in the commandments. In fact, when you memorize the commandments, which I hope you will do, when you memorize the commandments, don't forget that verse. Because if you memorize the commandments without that verse, they become the typical thing we use them as, a ladder to climb up to make God save me. And they're not. You're already saved when he starts the commands. They're a result of his relationship with you. They're a result of his mercy for you. They're a result of his salvation. They're a result of what it means to be in relationship with him. I've come and I've rescued you from slavery. Then he starts, you must not have any other gods before me. Now, think about it for a sec. They've had lots of gods. Everybody they know has lots of gods. The Canaanites have lots of gods. The Hittites have lots of gods. The Amorites have lots of gods. The Egyptians have lots of gods. And their God is saying, you get one. Now, is this just a poor, impoverished little nation that can only afford one God? Is that what the real problem is here? Or is God simply helping them understand there are no other gods? Everything you've ever seen before is a rock or a stick or a lump of something. I am the only real, active, true, moving God. You shouldn't have any other gods because there's no such thing. In our spiritual lives, we have to be really careful. In the, in the first world, we don't typically go around with little, little idols in our house that we make sacrifices to, Right? You know, we don't typically have a little thing in our house that we make sacrifices to. You see it once in a while, but it's not very common. In that day, everybody had one. Everybody had household gods. Everybody did little sacrifices to their household gods. That's why he keeps having to tell Israel, throw out the idols, throw out the idols, throw out the idols. Hey, guys, throw out the idols. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Most of us think we we can just pass this one because we don't actually have any of those. But I just want to remind you that we do. We sacrifice our time to that eye in the front of the house, it's getting bigger. They used to all be about like this, and now they're getting bigger. I can't even put my arms around some of them. Well, sometimes we sacrifice our relationships to that thing. We make lots of sacrifices to things that we have in our house. We sacrifice our financial security for a nicer car, a bigger house. We sacrifice our relationship with our spouse to make our boss happy. We do lots of things like this. We put a lot of things out in front that we make sacrifices for. We have to be really careful about the idea of idolatry, the idea of putting something before God. Just be a little careful about this because it's not as, it's not as complex as we make it. It's just simply, is there anything in my life in front, in, in front of God in the line of things? If, this, if God is supposed to have first place, did I put anything in front of that? That's the only question here. Did I put anyone or anything in front of that? That includes your spouse. Loving your spouse is something you should do with all your heart. But God gets first. 
even ahead of them. God gets to be first in your life, in everything you do. Second commandment, you must not make for yourself an idol to any, of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens, the earth, or the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Now, I, wanna, I want you to recognize that the last phrase in, in this term idol are the big points here. I, we have a group of people in our world who believe that if you make an image of anything, any kind of image of anything should be destroyed. A, a picture of a butterfly, you should kill it, be, destroy it, tear it up, because now you're worshiping it. Not what the text is about. The text is saying, look, don't make an image of something so that it might be idol, uh, an idol to you, and don't bow down and worship it. So don't make an idol of something and then bow down and worship it. Now, most of us don't think we have idols either. But if you think about the things you idolize, consider the things you idolize and the people you idolize. Be careful about the idea of idolatry. Be careful about the idea of idolatry. Anything you put in front of God, any image of anything that you put in front of God, that's the picture here. That's what he's asking you. So imagine the the setting. The earth is shaking. The mountain looks like it's on fire fire. Thunder and lightning are coming from the sky and they're not coming down the street. They're right over your head. It's the kind of thunder and lightning that feels like it's coming right through your head when it goes off. When that roll of thunder peels, your ears kind of ache a little bit. Things sort of quake. You feel it in your chest like a big bass note from an organ that's being played in a stone church. You just feel it hit you. That's the kind of thing. The earth is moving. It's not just the mountain that's moving. The earth under their feet is moving. This whole group is going, uh, 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 uh. the whole place is moving. All of that is happening. God is speaking to them. Look, there are no other gods before me. Don't make a fake one and don't pretend to have one. There's nothing else out there. I'm the only God who can do this. Look, you want to see me shake it a little more? I'm the only God that's real. And then the, the third commandment, the one that often just gets cruised over with these first three. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Why is he so so picky about his name? Don't you hate when people are picky about their names? They got this weird name that no one can spell or read, and then they want you to pronounce it right the first time you ever see it in print. Come on! Get over it. Put some vowels in your name. Or take a couple out. So that we can figure out what it is. If your name came from a country a long ways away from here, written in a language nobody here has ever seen before, give us a little break, will you? Don't be so picky about your name. And here's God saying, look, I'm picky about my name. He's so picky about his name, Israel took this commandment so seriously that, that several hundred years ago they stopped saying it all together. And it's, it's to, our, to our demise in, this, in the centuries in which we live now because no one remembers how it was supposed to actually be pronounced. We take a shot at Yahweh. We think that's how it's supposed to be pronounced. We take a shot at Yehovah because we think that might be how it's supposed to be pronounced. But there are no vowel marks in it. It's all consonants. You're just guessing. We're taking a swing at what should be there, what we think might be there, but we don't know for sure. Because God said, don't mess with my name. Don't take it in vain. Don't, don't use my name poorly. Now, people always think, and I've tried to, tried to disabuse you of this idea, that this is about cursing. The Bible has things to say about cursing, and you certainly shouldn't be using God's name as a curse word. Okay? Okay. I mean... 
for goodness sake. (laughs) Careful. Careful. But I think there's a lot more here. And this is where I want to, what I want to finish with today. I want to finish with what I believe is truly probably the, the most overlooked and maybe one of the more important commands of the ten. Do not use God as a pretense for faith. You know, vanity, using it in vain is kind of pretending, right? Just kind of faking it. Just kind of, eh, you know. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know what gets me with this? It's the guy I'm buying a car from or the guy I'm buying something from an appliance. It's always a big purchase. You know, you go in there and you're looking at this guy and he, you're want, he's wanting you to buy the $800 dryer instead of the $250 dryer. And you're like, what's better about that than this? And he starts finding out, oh, you're a believer. He sees somehow it's on your email address. It's you got some symbol of Christianity hanging around you or stuck on your shirt. You show up in your Grace Point shirt at the, shirt, at the, at the used car lot, whatever it is. Somehow he realizes, oh, this is a Christian. And all of a sudden he gets conversion. All of a sudden he starts talking about God. Oh, yeah, well, you know, God would want you to have this $850 dryer. How do you know that? And don't insult me and God about with this. Come on. When we use faith to manipulate, when we use faith as a pretense, when we use God's name as a pretense for things, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually what? Who are actually engaged, who are actually trying, who are actually doing the will of God, who are actually submitted to the authority of God. That's what it means to be doing the will of God. It means I surrender myself to an understanding of following God. I want to do what God wants me to do. Do you do that every day? No, you don't. You try. You didn't know how to answer, did you? You looked at me like, ah. If I say yes, I won't be telling the truth. If I say no, he'll think I'm a bad person. I already know you're a bad person. So is the person next to you. So is the person preaching to you. We are all messing this up. But the point is every day we're surrendering our will to God's will and we're trying to follow after him. That's why mercy and grace continues. Otherwise God slaps a little mercy and grace on at the beginning and says, all right, you're on your own from here. Not true. He manages your whole life under his mercy and his grace. For his whole time, the whole time in your, when you are growing in your followership and your surrendership and your submission, as that's happening, becoming more and more a part of who you are, he's continuing to cover you as you grow, as you mature. That's why, you can be, that's why Peter could tell you to grow in grace. Once you're covered by God, continue to grow. But don't use faith as a pretense. Some of us fake faith. And that's one of the more dangerous things you can do on the planet. Because if you have a fake faith, you can't have a real faith. It's like having an idol. You set it up there and you bow down to it and it can't do anything for you. You pray to a God that doesn't exist and it can't help you. If you've got fake faith, real faith can't help. That's why Jesus, in the description of the Laodicean church, says, I'd rather you were hot or cold. I'd rather you were completely in, trying really hard and following after me the best you can, stumbling along. Or I'd rather you were so cold that you knew you were cold. If you're on one of those extremes, at least there's an opportunity for you to pick one. 
But if you're in the middle faking, trying to pretend like you are, you know, well, you know, I go to church every week. You know, I show up, stuff happens. I'm there. And God's saying, don't be a pretend Christian. Don't be a pretend follower. Don't claim to be mine and actually be someone else's. It'd be like being a pretend husband or a pretend wife. Doesn't go so well. It's a pretense to gain advantage. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. The Bible says in several places you're not supposed to to proclaim the name of God when you make a promise. I swear by the heavens. The Bible says you are not to do that. That is God's home. I swear by Jerusalem. You are not supposed to do that. That's his footstool. Don't swear by these things. Don't, Don't try to proclaim something that gives you favor in the eyes of the other person by taking God's name on. This is really significant when you're a believer and you're known to be a believer. If you work for a Christian organization like me, if you're wandering around, I wore yesterday, I didn't even think about it. I was wearing a shirt yesterday. It was a black shirt, and it said Seventh-day Adventist Church. I, didn't, I hope I behaved myself yesterday. I don't, didn't even remember that I had that on there. If you're putting the fish on your car, behave like a believer or take the fish off. When you go into negotiations and you're a Christian organization, you have to do it differently. When we built this building, we discovered that under the ground here at about six or seven feet everywhere was water. We were digging holes. We had holes out in the parking lot where some of your cars are now parked that were just filled with water. And we pumped water out of those holes from February through July to try to get it dry enough just to put a parking lot down. Okay? Now, the good news is they were all over there, none of them where you're sitting today. Although we did lose a D8 tractor right about there. So you guys might watch it if it starts to shake. (laughs) They pulled it out with a backhoe. What's interesting about that is when we came to the, the resolution of paying for all of that, the guy who was in charge of the dirt contract, okay? Did you know there were dirt contractors? I didn't either, but there are. The guy who was the dirt contractor came with a $45,000 bill. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you, or it may. It sounded like a lot to me when he came with it. And we sat down with him, and we had records. See, we had a guy here who came every morning and sat in his trailer, and he marked off everybody who came on the job, when they came, what they did, when they left. He had a record of everything. And the guy came with this bill, and in that bill was, the, was a record of how he had, what he had done to, to clear up the water and deal with the issues and all of that. And there were a few disputable facts in there. Okay? Now, normal business. I saw the contractors do it at least weekly, sometimes more often. They would just stand nose to nose and scream at each other for 20 minutes over something like that. Literally. Those of you who have been on the building trades, I don't know if the rest of the trades or the rest of, I don't know, some of you business folks, you may be getting in back rooms and standing at each other and screaming at each other too. I don't know, but I saw these guys do it. If preachers do that, we get in trouble, by the way. 
Nobody likes that. His daughter was sitting there because she was part of, partly involved with his business. She was his business manager. And we had our little list of facts. And he had his list of facts, and they weren't matching up. Now, frankly, I trust my, my list of facts because I know the guy who's writing facts. And I think what had happened is he was, at the end of each day, trying to write down what took place. And so the three of us who are representing your church, I don't know if I've ever made this confession to you before. We spent some of your money. We went aside because we had this list, and we were either going to have a fight there in front of this man and his daughter, or we were going to have to say, you know, we're not that far off. And so we stepped away, went into another room, talked for a few minutes. And what we decided to do, because we were representing a church, because we were representing God to a person who didn't know God, was to be generous in the way God is generous with us. And so he had never seen our list. Okay, he had not seen what was on our side of the list. So we talked for a few minutes and we decided not to show him our list. We decided to pay his price. It was going to cost us, I don't remember, wasn't much, 10% more. And we decided that because of what we represented, because of the name we claimed, we were going to let this go and count it to God's generosity. We built the building. The building came in $2,100 under budget. Dirt contractor in his $45,000 and all else. And I believe that's a representation of what it means to be careful with the name of God. We need to be careful of the name of God. Don't use the name of God to bolster your argument. I used to say a lot when I was a kid, I swear to God. I would just use it just as a common phrase. You know, I, I, this, I saw this, this person fly off the top of this building. I swear to God. This passage is saying you don't get the opportunity to swear to God. You don't use his name to bolster your argument. Either you have facts or you don't. Either you have a believable argument or you don't. Either the person's going to buy it or they're not. Let your reputation stand for your reputation. But don't sully his reputation in an attempt to bolster your reputation. In this particular passage, he's talking about the prophets telling lies in my name. I didn't send them or tell them to speak. I didn't give them any messages. They prophesy of visions and revelations they've never seen or heard. They speak foolishness made up in their own lying hearts. But it's not just the prophets who have to be careful. 
about bolstering our argument with God's name. You know, we've, we've, we've gone through these first three real quick. We, we go through them often very quickly. No other gods before me. Check, no problem. No idols. Check, no problem. Don't take the name of the Lord your name in vain. Check, no problem. What I want to say is there's problems. There are things for us to be aware of. And they center on the idea of taking on the name of God for yourself. They center on the idea of representing that name well. When you sign on that line and say, I'm going to be a follower of God, it means something. Because he means something. Because he needs a group of people who represent his name well enough that the world can see him through us. When he was asked by the disciples to tell them how to pray, here's how he introduced the prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. That's what hallowed be thy name means. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my life, in your life, I would like to pray that. Over all of us and in all of us, may his name be kept holy. May his kingdom come soon. And may his will be done in our lives each day on earth as we live as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, those are my words. May we keep your name holy. May we not take it lightly in conversation, throw it in to bolster an argument, use it to try to change someone's opinion of us. May we recognize that you are calling us to a higher plane than we're used to being on. I pray for the transformative power of that name. I pray that as we represent you in our daily walk, in our business, in whatever we do, that we might do it in a way that honors you. That we might truly be part of your kingdom as we wait for your kingdom. That our nature would be like your nature. That our behavior would be like your behavior. That our ideas would be like your ideas. That our hearts would be tied to your heart. And I pray that we would surrender ourselves so completely that we can experience your will here in our lives on this planet like it is experienced in heaven. In Jesus' name. Amen.